Today is part two of three of Millennial History's Stories from Romania. If you haven't listened to part one of Children of the Decree, make sure you do that before listening to this one, part two. Let's jump in. I mean, I just find it really interesting. Here. This is talk about everything. Because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we speak with millennials who lived big moments in recent world history from up close. In the previous episode, we met Joanna and Katinka. They were both born in Romania during the final years of the dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. Katinka has always lived in Romania. Joanna was adopted from an orphanage into America when she was four years old. They painted the picture of a dictatorship that reminds of the Hunger Games, The Handmaid's Tale or North Korea, complete with the cult of the great leader, forced pregnancies, complete state control and a lack of everything. In this episode, Katinka and Joanna talk us through the revolution, the wild west of the 90s and the way people adapt to massive changes in society and in their relationships. Here is what you can expect. Yes, it is true. What you have always thought, that you can only count on yourself, it's true. We're making a political system out of it. We're making an economical system out of it. Yes, fight among each other. The one who's strongest, the one who's smartest, the one who gets by the first wins. Life is not better. We're not richer. We just have more options that we can't take. The concept that I have the hardest time with is the idea that anything comes without a price. That anything is taken for granted. And so people then, they give you pep talks and saying, oh yeah, but you know, you'll have to experience difficult things in life. And you're really sitting there thinking, oh, they have no idea. My name is Andrea Wutz. I am a musical journalist and I'm joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. All of the music you will hear has been offered by musicians from Romania. Let's go. The international powers wanted Ceausescu dead as much as we did. He was already an old, senile leader. His hands were trembling. It is impossible to perceive him as dangerous. We needed the whole structure underneath Ceausescu to be eliminated in order to actually make a change. But they sacrificed him, he was sort of the sacrificial lamb, in order to make us feel more empowered than we actually were. Everything has this aura of a show. This live show called The Revolution in Romania. What was happening here was fake. We were not a big nation, we were not rich, people were not happy, we were not equal, we were not a community. Now we pretended we were. We did not love our leader, we were the only country in the Eastern Bloc who killed their leader. We shot Ceausescu in the back on Christmas. I mean, uh, we're very peaceful, we're very kind, we're very poor, we're very fragile, but at the end of the day, we just shot him in the back and it was televised and we made a show out of it. 
the world was watching. So we did this? We could have done this like five years ago, ten years ago, you know, just say, okay, we had enough, go through the streets and say, we don't want this regime anymore. Was that possible? All throughout the time and we just did not do it? Crazy. I remember from the discussions within the adult group uh, at my place, yes, that relatives were calling one another and asking, do, is this really happening? Do you really believe this is happening? Are we really free now? It's one of the very few moments that I, I have just a super vague memory of every, all of us being brought into the same room and being told something important. And I don't remember what it was, but I'm certain that some one of the workers in the orphanage said, okay, Ceausescu is, is down, you know, so then that was a thing. There was a feeling of we, we were all in the same place being told something important and that there was this collective sort of holding where you want to let the breath go, but you don't dare to let it go all the way because you're unsure of what that, what does the future mean. When you are a part of a culture that has been so severely affected by a historical event and that event ends, you also feel the energetic shift. You feel the, the release of the people around you, although there's always especially in the East, there's always a release, but then wondering, okay, well, who's next going to come in and control us? Are we next in line to control our own destiny? It was a sort of wild, wild west, the 90s in Romania. The people were completely shocked and their brains exploded. It was an explosion of small shops, you know, that shops that were at the ground floor of buildings and everybody like had a small balcony, just opened it up to the street and sold there a bunch of random products. Yes. And a lot of businesses like that that went bankrupt in a few years because they were just too many and because people did not have this economical culture, you know. You had no concepts of marketing or distribution or saying, oh my God, if from an apartment build of 60 apartments, five of us have small shops at the ground floor of the same building, none of us has a chance to survive. You were always an uh, someone who was employed. You were never somebody who took decisions. You were never, never somebody who had the vision. The only things that was sure within communists was the fact that you had a job. And you could be sure of that, that nobody will kick you out. I mean, it was in nobody's interest for you to be unemployed. And suddenly now you are free, you can say whatever you want, but you have nothing to be sure of anymore. It was completely insane, completely insane. I think it felt even harsher what happened in the 90s when differences around us appeared. 
So I, I remember also the revelation of the first Coca-Cola I ever drank, you know, seeing sneakers, the McDonald's. That was like wonderland. I mean, we had no concept that those things existed. And once they appeared, our universes just expanded. And of course, we wanted that. We did not want the stew, the potato stew that my grandmother and my mother made all throughout my childhood. And for the first time ever, they were put in a totally different position of saying, we can't afford it. Because that would be a new, a new thing to say, we can't afford it. Absolutely. Until now it was, it's not available. So I did not perceive it as something that we can't have and the others can. It's just not available. We are trying to find it, you know, it's just like going through the woods and searching for magic mushrooms. And now it was suddenly, that's not for us. And it was very hard, you know, for a child to actually accept that it's finally available. But what, are we actually poor? I remember asking myself this question somewhere around seven, eight, yeah, 1991, started school and saying, oh my God, we are actually poor. I thought everybody had the same, but this is not valid anymore. You have to adapt. When I came to the States, nobody learned Romanian for me. I had to learn English. I definitely remember until about age six easily uh, multiple instances where I just did not understand what was going on. I mean, I understood the words, but I didn't understand the context. I never really understood why things happened. I stole a pack of gum when I was five, and I didn't understand what this stealing thing was. You know, I, I just wanted it, so I took it. And my parents were explaining to me, you know, when you steal and you don't pay for something, it's very bad, you have to pay for it. And I just remember in my head putting together, okay, not allowed to take it without giving this paper thing, you know? It took me a while to understand, I kept doing it. And I also remember going to the polls when Clinton was being elected president with my parents. This is one of my strongest memories as a child for sure. Because also I was just allowed to run around the polling stations and pop up in between someone's stomach and the edge of their polling table and say, oh, who are you voting for? With my Eastern European accent. And my mother explained to me, we're voting for who the leader of the country is. And she also always explained to me in relation to where I came from. So then I also understood very much what democracy was because of because of the way that it was explained to me, not that it was an inherent right, but it was, it was that this is what we do in this country because we have decided that this is the system that works best for us and we have a certain amount of agency that where you came from did not exist. The system changed without offering time to the people to change. The system did not change as a consequence of the change that occurred within the people. So they wanted freedom, but they didn't understand by freedom what the Western world understood by freedom. They didn't value the fact that they could finally go to the supermarket and have seven brains of yogurts to choose from. They still bought the old one, the one they recognized. And the younger generation, of course, wanted to try all the other six brands of yogurts that did not exist there before. 
And my grandmother wanted to cook the same things, to wake up at the same hour, to go to the market and buy every ingredient where she was used to, to have the upper hand that she has somewhere in a drawer, two packs of cigarettes and one pack of coffee. For the bribe, in case of need. Yes, in case of need, yes. And she still kept those things. I remember that she still kept that habit quite late into the 2000s uh, of keeping meat in the fridge, you know, when she found some good piece of meat and she bought it. And then she kept it like for three, four, five, six months in the fridge in order to use it when we come to visit. Because her brain just couldn't register the fact that now it's available and she could buy the same meat two days before we arrive or even in the day when we, we arrive. remember the huge fights my parents had with my grandparents when we were going to visit. I mean, when my mother tasted the meat and said, this tastes like really old meat. And then my grandmother is smiling and saying, well, I bought it after Christmas. And everybody at the table realizing that that was six months ago or seven months ago. And what do you do with that? Because The grandmother definitely spent like three days in the kitchen trying to cook the best things she could for us. How do you handle that? You try to be faithful And sometimes you're cruel Do you break her heart? You are mine Or just engage in the game once again The charade and play this little thing for her so that she feels appreciated. I remember at the beginning of the 90s, huge fights between my parents and my grandparents because some were pro-revolution and changing the system and Western values and the others were extremely reluctant and said, but, but, but we refine here. And me as a child saying, oh my God, you complained all throughout my childhood that we don't have enough. And now you're saying that it was fine, it is fine, everything should remain as we know it. Isn't this absurd? And it took me a lot of time to understand that actually their fear of something new was greater. At least they knew how to get by in that system. They trained themselves all throughout their lives in order to be able to get by. As time passed by, I realized, yeah, yeah she, she, she was not ready for a revolution. She spent all her life trying to adapt and accept this system. I also lived throughout my parents' disappointment. I mean, how this revolutionary spirit died in them as well. So after the disappointment of my grandparents and as the economical situation in Romania got worse within the 90s, you know, the grandparents said, well, weren't we right that it was better during communism? Why did you need the revolution? Why did you risk your life? Why did you risk orphaning your child by going and fighting with those guys? When you see life is not better. We're not richer. We're not eating anything new or better anyway. We have no perspectives. We just have more options that we can't take. 
the concept that I have the hardest time with is the idea that anything comes without a price, that anything is taken for granted. I have a very difficult time with these sort of cultural mile markers um, that that at a certain point you're supposed to have a certain thing happen to you. Because I turned 16, I should get a car and a driver's license. I mean, I thought, well, you should get a car and a driver's license if you need to drive. There is a lot of expectation put on other people of, in terms of, oh, you shouldn't treat me like this because, I mean, you should always be treated well. If I were to compare it to the Western culture, is the lack of entitlement, you know? You're always questioning what you're actually entitled to. Life happened to you. While the Western mentality is that you create your own life, you are the creator of your own environment, which is a lot more empowering. If you're just a piece from the puzzle, if somebody else is impacting you always, then you don't develop this sort of drive of doing, changing, engaging, testing new possibilities. And that sort of keeps you enslaved to your own condition. position of deciding for ourselves. And now, 30 years after this so-called revolution, there is nothing that grew in a nurturing way within the souls of the people. It is only trauma, it is only things that were hurtful, it is only disappointment, there were only leaders that disappointed the people, everybody stole, everything that was built throughout communism was dismantled, but on the other hand, we did not put, in, put anything in its place. We were not able to do that. Sometimes in situations where I'm told, uh, yes, this opportunity will be happening for you, and I, I always think, Oh, that's so great. We'll just wait and see. Let's just wait until it can't be undone. Because I just know how easily our realities can be changed. When Corona happened, I thought to myself, this is the new reality. A lot of my teachers, and, and it came from a, you know, from a very supportive place of, but Joanne, it's okay, the future's going to be fine, we'll go back to normal, we're coming back to school in two weeks. Uh, no, we're not. <laughs> we, I knew it. A, a lot of my American comrades oftentimes call me pessimistic, but I prefer to just call myself a realist. Not that I think everything will be negative, but I think that negativity is always, a negative outcome is always a possibility, and to accept that. So, oh, but you're so pessimistic. I said, no, I'm just realistic. And so people then, they give you pep talks, and it comes from a really lovely place, and they're saying, oh yeah, but you know, you'll have to experience difficult things in life, and you're really sitting there thinking, oh, they have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea.
Romanians, they you can feel that there is that they've internalized all their experiences from living under the restrictions of the communist regime. Basically, everybody is very closed and keeping to themselves. And I noticed this when I was there in 2015, that there was a closedness. You know, they are not sort of open for business, for social business. I feel it immediately, the difference. You know, you don't have to look everybody in the eye and say hello. The relationship with the party and the political system was considered as more important than any personal relationship, than family, than collective, than partnerships, than anything else. You get this energy, this fuel, from the contact with people, from not being afraid of the contact with the other. You don't think it's about communism, it's rather about dictatorship. You lack this natural ability of creating bonds. You either put too much value, risk being extremely disappointed, or you only focus on yourself, a bit disconnected from the world disconnected from the others. Though the official philosophy was we are all together and we should help each other. What happened in the 90s, the non-collective philosophy that the people engaged in, now it became the rule. Now it was official. Yes, it is true. What you have always thought, that you can only count on yourself, it's true. We're making a political system out of it. We're making an economical system out of it. Yes, fight among each other. The one who's strongest, the one who's smartest, the one who gets by the first wins. There's nothing more besides that. We're not going to pretend that we're building a great nation, a great future. It is what it is. Now it's your time to get rich. capitalist infusion that came at once and that made the perfect storm. You don't trust the others, you don't trust your own people, whom should you trust? I, I cannot imagine this, that trust is such, such a basic problem. <laughs> yes, of course, because you lived completely different experience. And usually when I talk with people from other countries, they have resistance. And I mean, rationally, they understand it and they accept it. They don't have like an emotional representation of these concepts of, and of the way they actually affect the people. difficult for me to ask for help. If you ask someone for help, then you are a little bit owing to them and, and never wanting to feel like I owe people things. I can do it on my own. It's safer that way. It's more protective. The idea of being adopted is, oh, you were chosen, you were saved. You, were you should cute. be grateful. Somehow you were also sort of expected by society to pay back some sort of debt that you have accrued, even though it wasn't my choice. I didn't 
and say, hi, please adopt me. I'll, I'll pay you back by solving cancer. I certainly don't ever have this feeling that things are owed, that things are just there for the taking. And I see this a lot with people that are not adopted, that they, they do have this mentality of, the world is my oyster. It's just there for me to do what I want. We have to somehow be grateful for being adopted. So, but what if you're adopted into a family of alcoholics that also beat the living daylights out of you, uh, but you're still supposed to be grateful because you're not in Romania. There is always this assignment of gratitude, assignment of societal responsibility because you were saved. So you have to, you know, I have to make the investment worth it. I was standing in front of the mirror this morning and I was looking at my face and I thought, does my face look Romanian? Do I look Romanian? I must have been in my teens, maybe 15 or 16, I want to say. I had a, quite an argument with my mother and I said, you know, I want to go back to Romania and I want to get my Romanian citizenship. And she said over her dead body. And she also said, well, you're mine. This show was created by Resonate Productions. We make musical journalism about emotional blind spots. Many thanks to all the musicians who donated their songs to help to tell this story. Subkarpac, Simina Priescu, Karpovnot Kasparov, Georgi Dumitru, Sanem Kalfa and Kosima Opartan. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. In the third and final Romanian episode, Katinka and Joanna will dive deep into their own generation of the children of the decree, the kids that had to be born because of Ceausescu's birth politics. How do you shape your sense of self, relationships, and even a whole new society when you did not have a stable start in life? See you next time.